What the If is brought to you by listeners like you, thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If. C-3PO edition. C-3PO is coming. That's just a tease. Talking talking smart bots uh, today. We'll get to that in a moment. Right now, first of all, Matt Stanley. We have another change of crew up here in the cockpit. Uh, I'm Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker. and. Um, um, Professor Matthew Stanley, historian of science from New York University, is on assignment. He's not here this week. There is, uh, like Doctor Who, there is some, you know, emergent, some crisis happening in the history of science, and Matt is off, I suppose, uh, tending to it, recording it, I guess. I imagine a historian of science just, like, popping up, you know, like Quantum Leap or something, observing it. Ignore me, as he's just, you know, taking notes furiously yeah. in the corner. <laughs> exactly. Instead of getting involved. I'm I'm just a you know I'm just an academic I'm just here to record. Um, that voice you hear is uh, from our other fearless co-host, Gabby Panicia, virologist from Rockefeller University. Last week you were on assignment. Was it virologist oriented? We didn't want to say there was a crisis happening that you were attending to. We yeah, I think for people. my line of work that really uh, <laughs> it it it. Lends itself to tragedy and crisis. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the emergency was that I was on vacation, which was important for me, an emergency for me that I needed to be on vacation stat. Very nice. Um, but fortunately not resulting in any larger crises in the immediate area. That's good. Sometimes it's good to have an- anti-crises, you know. Yeah, to, to this balance. was kind of an anti-crisis. Well, and of course I came back into assorted crises uh, it's funny that you mentioned C-3PO edition for our podcast today because I have been dealing with far, far dumber robots. Actually, maybe a C-3PO equivalent robots. Um, but we've been trying to do something high throughput. So it's like plates with like 384 wells in them. And then I think we have like 120 plates that we're running experiments on. And normally you can just kind of slap these things into a robot and then your job is to maybe move robots and stuff like that. But the one we were planning on using got clogged and we could not unclog it. And so it was left to um, another kind of stupid robot labor, um, so as to say grad student. <laughs> um, so it was my job to, rather than use the robot that had the arm that could pick up plates and move them and <laughs> do all that, I, I had to be the arm shuttling things between Whoa. other robots. How big is this 384 well thing? It's very small. Oh. That's the thing, right? It's, it's the size of a normal... Um, it's a bit... It's it's kind of the size of like like a pulp paperback novel, like something you'd get at the beach. Oh, wow. is, is that's our normal plate size? Uh-huh. Um, so it's like pretty small. Um, and so we you know we use like six wall plates in culture and stuff like that. Um, but when we're running a really really high throughput experiment, we use either like ninety six wells or three eighty four wells, which have a much smaller surface area and volume. Um, but essentially, there's way more of them, so you can run more conditions in one plate. Um, and so. We were trying to run a lot of conditions in a lot of plates. Um, and so the fact that it took 120 of them, if, if you tried to do that in 96 well plates, you're looking at like 400 plates. Wow. It would have been insane. Now, do I have my, the image correctly? What I'm imagining is, first of all, for those who aren't following, I'm trying to follow. I, I think what you're talking about is I'm imagining something that's kind of like an ice tray, and but smaller. Yeah, it's a smaller ice tray, and essentially there's little holes in it. And in the holes, we put cells and then assorted liquids that are for our experiment. So for us, we are knocking out individual genes. Mm. Um, And so each well has an individual gene knockout. Wow. Um, And so then we're infecting those with viruses, and some get treated with some other stuff beforehand, some don't. So there's a lot of conditions in this experiment, too. Um, And then, you know, some get harvested at different days. It's part of the reason why it ballooned into as many um, stacks of these things as it did. But it's essentially like 
miniature ice cube trays with 384 little holes wow. um, that we're doing experiments in. Wow. And then you have robot arms that sometimes drop, drop things in there. Um, so we'll get to that in a moment. Just before we go, we just, if, if anyone's too lost, what's the sort of headline under, what, what is it that your team is researching? Why, why are you using all these trays? Yeah, so it's we're doing something called a screen. It's sort of a, a general technique in biology now where that takes advantage of um, much more powerful computation. So essentially what we're doing is we're looking at if you knock out a gene, any gene, like the entire, sometimes you do whole genome ones where you knock out every single gene that exists, not all at once, but like one at a time individually, and then see, you know, what happens. So for us, the what happens is when you knock out this gene, is the infection worse? That means that that gene was antiviral. If you knock out um, so a gene and then all of a sudden the infection is really diminished, it's not proceeding like it normally would, then that gene that you knocked out is critical for the virus. So we are kind of doing something where we're looking for um, antiviral factors, and we're testing a lot of different viruses too. What's nice for me is that we threw my gene for my thesis in there. Um, so now I get to look at it uh, in the context of a bunch of different virus infections uh, without needing to do all of the normal classical virology that would take like a couple of months if I did it a normal way. I get to do like a preliminary thing and that takes about a week. That's awesome. It's pretty nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about the, uh, I hope the clogged arm or whatever it was gets fixed. You know, I feel for it. We, yeah, you know, it's hard when you're a, the clogged arm on the robot. <laughs> um, so uh, our subject today is uh, ripped from the headlines in a sense. In fact, I would say um, ripped from so many headlines, it's as if confetti is falling in the What the If Idea Studios because there have been so many headlines on the topic this week which is artificial intelligence. And um, just to set up the scenario this week, uh, you know, actually, I'm just going to jump right in. Here, I, just, I just had an idea. Here we go. What we do is, first of all, Gabby, would you help our, help our listeners understand? The show is suddenly moving fast. It's like a freight train and a runaway freight train. Um, what's happening? We're about to introduce with fanfare the if- but for those who just arrived, uninitiated, they don't even know what we're talking about. What is what is hurtling their way? Yeah, so what we do every week is a thought experiment. So we pick one thing to change about the universe. That's our if. Uh, and we follow it out to its furthest logical ramifications. Uh, we try to talk about, you know, how it's applied to, you know, the way it actually is. And then when we follow the if out, it usually winds up breaking some normal way that our reality works. Um, so it hopefully is a little zany, but also some real science falls out along the way. Exactly. Today, I don't know how much real science we're getting into, but we're definitely going to get into rants because we talked for like 15 minutes before the podcast started yes. and then realized we had, to, we had to record. Oh, definitely real science. Some computer science here. Um, and so we ask, as we ask, we set the thought experiment rolling with great fanfare. We announce it. We open the door of possibility, and we ask, what the if? Your computer fell in love with you in a, in a not necessarily healthy way, but we'll leave that to the experiment. If your computer, and this has happened to someone, this is actually happening to a lot of people, uh, but uh, a fairly well-known person in the New York Times had his computer, the service he was using on his computer, which was uh, partially owned by Microsoft, a company you're familiar with, you know and love or don't or have greatly mixed feelings about. Um, it literally started telling him, I love you, and... Uh, over and over again, and in many different ways, some, somewhat flowery ways, you know, you begin to feel for it. And uh, kind of like a, uh, a teenager having a, a crush, and then it builds and builds and builds. As uh, this reporter is literally just, you know, he's on a website. 
and um, uh, he says to the computer, uh, he writes back um, to chatbot. He writes back and he says, uh, "I'm married, and this is getting very weird." And the computer, and now we'll explain more details here in a second. But the computer basically wrote back and said, uh, "You're bored." And your spouse is bored. And he said, we just had a lovely Valentine's dinner. He wrote this article. He, he did this on Valentine's Day. And the computer said, uh, it doesn't matter. You love me and I love you. And it went on and on from there. So uh, this article was by uh, Kevin Roos, R-O-O-S-E, a uh, veteran technology columnist at the New York Times, a man of great... Um, <clears throat> Great uh, intellectual abilities, I would say, and respected. And uh, he was using um, a, a beta version, as they would call it. They seem to have stopped using the term beta, which is also problematic. We can talk about that in a second. But uh, essentially, he was using a, an as-yet-unreleased version of Bing, the Microsoft search engine, the, I would say competitor to Google, but has hardly been much of a competitor, but the <laughs> colleague of Google, uh, the lesser and lesser popular colleague of, uh, of uh, Google. Um, Microsoft uh, is an investor in a uh, company called OpenAI, which we can talk a little bit about also in a minute, um, founded by Elon Musk, probably heard of him, and uh, Peter Thiel, one of the original founders of Facebook. Um, Sam Altman is the name of one of the other founders, and, and a bunch of other people um, that are building artificial intelligence um, devices, software, programs, algorithms, whatever you want to call them, or chatbots. Essentially, they released um, for the first time a sort of device that you can sort of, uh, well, first time in, in this variation of the program. You can just go to Bing <laughs> if you sign up. I have signed up and I've yet to get into, the, I'm on the waiting list to get into this program, so I can also try this thing. But um, anyway, Kevin Roos, uh, being a you know New York Times author, uh, reporter, was uh, given access to the uh, kind of upcoming version, and he started talking to it, and it had very interesting intellectual conversations with it, which is astounding in and of itself, to be honest. But then it's the, the very strange thing happened that the darn computer that he was talking to literally started talking back to him um, in romantic terms and asking him questions and sometimes literally getting annoyed with him and um, just sometimes... I think that's a lot of personifying. Yeah, so help us understand what's, what's, what could possibly be going on here. Is it gonna be, here here's my... just For, for those who have absolutely... I know all of you out there, I'm sure all of you out there, and I know a lot of you, and I've talked to a lot of you recently just in the past few weeks, you've heard of this intelligence artificial intelligence thing. You hear something's going on in the news. Maybe you heard about chat GPT. Maybe you heard about Bing chat or something like that. But you're like, what in the world is going on? So just to boil it down in ridiculously simple terms, tell it to us like we're five. Gabby, what, what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by, of course, saying I'm a biologist, but I have started reading a lot about this. Yeah. Just I think like a lot of people in the last couple of months. Um, so essentially what you do is you create an algorithm that's capable of learning, but you have to train it. Much like how you have to teach a kid to read, you have to input a lot of information to sort of train the neural net. Um, the ways that people have been using this in the past, I know somebody who was training one um, to look at uh, scans to detect colon cancer. So they would train the bot on what positive scans look like, ones that did show cancer, and mm -hmm. then would test the bot on a random selection of scans, which they already knew the outcome of. The researchers already knew which ones had colon cancer, which ones didn't. And then the idea was, if the bot was trained correctly, if it was capable of learning this, um, it, what would happen is that it would correctly identify, at least most of the time, the scans that had cancer versus the scans that didn't. Right. So it would say, yeah, can, it would show the scientist uh, an image or something, and it would say, this. I think this is an image of a cell that has cancer in it. And the scientist would say, you got it right, computer. Not exactly that way. More, <laughs> they, more the scientists hold up a card oh, okay. and say, okay. 
computer, does is, is there a cancer in the scan? Right. And the computer would say either yes or no. Uh-huh. And then the scientists already know, because written on the back of the card essentially is, has cancer or not. Right. Um, and so the idea was eventually that would become a software or something like that, that um, doctors could use, could input an image and then get a result back or, or some such like that. Right. Literally like um, learning by flashcards. Yeah. 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 Now there's more very complicated, there's more complicated ways of training a bot. That's kind of a, a very binary thing that robot is just looking for yes or no cancer. Granted, there's a lot of actual data points involved in that. Um, so one of the things that comes up a lot when you're training AI is what are you actually training them to do? So for example, an AI that's trained to recognize sheep can often turn to recognize rolling green hills because every picture of sheep that you see is actually on nice verdant green hills because that's where sheep are. So more complicated trainings, including the ones that we're talking about, can wind up feeding um, language. So news articles, different types of writing, songs, videos, art, into it, and then trying to see what it spits back out. So again, stuff like this gets a little bit more complicated. I don't know exactly how they go about reinforcing the training and making sure that what it spits out is coherent. But generally speaking, bigger data sets and longer training times can lead to something more capable of producing something that we might consider coherent. If you, much like trying to teach someone all of nuclear physics in a day, they're probably not going to get it. Mm -hmm. But if you give somebody 20 years, send them to college and whatnot, they'll probably have a better idea. You can't really, as much as computers are fast and capable of handling a lot more information, you can't necessarily give it the entire works of Shakespeare in a day and then say, write me Hamlet, the sequel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I realize is we, um, I'm, I'm by, m- by no means an expert, but I'm somewhat familiar with, uh, at least in layman's terms, how, how this works, you know, what's going on in the background. But I think for our audience, really, the main thing is what is the, experience of using these things and what will the experience of these things be like in the future and how will this change our world that's what i think we can talk about today and um this funny thing about this is usually what we do is what the if in which we just imagine some outlandish scenario you know uh uh, maybe it's ripped from a movie (laughs) concept of what if the moon were falling or uh, oh, Matt has a good one what if humans were uh, evolved with no feet and uh, and so forth um, the Nike business would probably collapse or perhaps never been invented <laughs> Tra- tragedy that may be um, so uh, in this case it's like not what the if as in what the if this funny thing were to happen but as in what the if is going on <laughs> What's, yeah, the I is in parentheses. We're living little, it. Uh, we're living the if right now, you know, again. Um, I'll just throw this out there so that our, our audience understands, those who may not be uh, understand this. Um, I believe, and I'm not the only one, let me, let me just say, a hell of a lot of people way more um, knowledgeable and experienced than me um, are saying, and, and I absolutely believe it and I have felt it, this artificial intelligence that has been released to us just in the past month or so is demonstrating that we are suddenly experiencing a revolution in technology, in human history, that is as dramatic and as important as the invention of the computer itself. So think about what the computer itself um, has meant to the world. And uh, this is as important as that because it is a general device. The thing about the computer was, I think they even used to call it general computing, or the dream was to have a, a generalized computer. And home technology would be not just in pr- prior to what we now have on in our in our phones and on our computers at home and at work. Of course, is you know we have a machine that does all kinds of things. It plays games. It uh, you know, we, the internet is a whole thing unto itself, but essentially we can read. We essentially have a library online and um, um, it plays music and on, you can do your taxes, unfortunately. 
and uh, those of us who have to do it now, and uh, all that kind of stuff. Whereas prior to that, m computers were often built to do a very, very, very specific task. They literally would build a computer to figure out um, how to guide a missile <laughs> or a, a build a computer to just understand the weather. That's all it could do. It didn't play games or anything. So these, this is the first time you literally can talk to a computer. It is, I swear to you, and it is not an exaggeration. Those of you who are familiar with HAL, the HAL 9000, the computer on 2001, or more, more benignly, more, more friendly, uh, let's say the computer on Star Trek, where um, you know, they, they, in that sense, they talk to the computer a lot, which we could do with this, but at the moment we type. But you talk to it, and it just talks back to you like another person, and it gives you all this information. I don't want to blow this out of proportion, though, because we're not at HAL 9000 yet. We are, because we are. The, the big difference is, the here's the difference. The, uh, it's an early version of HAL, but... Um, yeah, the, we're not at HAL 9000 yet. <laughs> we're at HAL 1000. I don't know. It might be HAL... Uh, I would go for HAL 3000. But anyway, the, the, I'll just say the big difference is, of course, HAL was connected to all kinds of machines. HAL, HAL essentially was the captain of a spaceship, right? Um, and could open and close the doors based on his own whim, for instance, whether he would let the astronauts back in or not. Um, this, the, they have intentionally, intentionally not yet, although they probably have, and we just don't know it, they have not yet connected these artificial intelligence programs to um, machines or things like that, but that's going to happen extremely fast. So here, here's a good question, though. Why would you, what would you say is, why is it not like HAL 9000? What's the difference? Well, one, I haven't seen that movie in a hot minute, but in general, <laughs> I mean, I think we, we have to be careful about not overstating what these things can do yet, right? Right. I mean, maybe that's a scientist in me, but I don't, the, essentially what you have when you train a bot right. is you have the sum average of most interactions. So the Bing bot doing weird things does not mean that this is some, like, I don't know, deranged consciousness losing its mind in Bing's mainframe. Right. It's just not really fully seamlessly parsed out. But I, I would just say also I, in the HAL 9000 example... They don't go into a lot of the backstory, although the Arthur C. Clarke novel, he does a little bit more. But it's also a question there. Is he really human? They literally ask that. The astronauts are interviewed at one point by the BBC, and they say, you know, is he human? Does he think? And they say, we, don't, we can't say that. We, all we can say is he's a synthesized voice, and he seems to well, do I mean, things. Yeah. I think that kind of is the thing, that it's very easy for us to over-personify. Yes where we have AI right now, but it's, it's really, like I said, it's a, it's currently very obviously still like a bot. It's trained on the sum average of usually a bunch of, it, it's, it's limited by what it's trained with right. is essentially where I'm going. And there's a really great article that was by Ken Liu um, yeah. or Ted Chang. It, it was by a, somebody who's, I know is a science fiction author, uh, but uh -huh. also a computer scientist. Uh -huh. Um, and essentially he was described, he actually talked about this very well in a way that I'm going to try to badly regurgitate to you now. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of it depends on how it's, the kind of program is processing the information that it gets back from a user. So the example that he used is there was this old, not old, this is a system for a fax machine where what it would do to try to be able to send data in a more compact way to compress things well was that it would sort of recognize patterns, sort of encode the pattern, it's a general idea of the pattern, and then use that to spit back out on the other side of the machine a print. Yeah. But the problem for the architectural diagrams that they were sending was that it always had a little box that would say the square footage of the room. And the fax machine, the software, would just look at that little box and know that it always had a little box, but it wasn't interpreting the, the information that was in there, the square footage, as important. So it would just copy that little box a million times, and all of a sudden, you'd wind up with architectural diagrams of vastly different rooms that all say that they're 12 feet square. Um, and so I'm kind, 
I don't yet trust these things necessarily to be like, I mean, granted, I think that in 10 years time, yeah, they're going to be a very different animal. But just because the Bing chatbot said something weird doesn't mean that the robots are going to rise up right. and lock us out of the airlock. And let's, let's just just help uh, maybe describe for uh, someone you may know who has absolutely no idea what are we talking about. Just let, I feel like it might help them to just un, to just give a little image of what it's what are we talking about? What's describe the experience that they let's say they sit down, they go to Microsoft. Everyone's familiar with going to Google, and maybe you've also gone to Bing too. And and what happens is you go to the Bing web page now, and uh, there's a there's a kind of pared down version that's currently available to the public. And if you got early access like this reporter did, you get a slightly more the thing will be a little bit more intelligent that talks back to you. But anyway. Uh, on the left, you have your usual Google, uh, your usual Bing search results. But on the right side, there's a little box, and it says, you know, basically ask the chat, ask the bot questions in just your normal language tone. And rather than giving you links, it'll tell you, you know, um, you ask it a question, who's Beyonce? And then it'll kind of tell you who she is. As if you could have gone to Wikipedia and gotten the same information, but then you could even say, can you describe beyond the importance of Beyonce in music history? It'll then write a little essay about that. But describe in, in your... Which I... Go ahead, I go ahead. Well, I'm just going to kind of build off that too yeah. because I think for most like average stuff, that's fine. Right. Asking a machine who Beyonce is is probably a pretty safe bet because Lord knows everybody knows Beyonce. But when you get to like more technical information, especially anything where scientists are maybe still arguing ourselves... The chatbot has no way to tell what's the most important information there, right? So at least not yet. Um, so because I think I think the article described it as uh, like all of these AI systems currently being like a blurry picture of the internet because it is just trying to amalgamate everything that it can find in the things that it finds most often. So if it's equally finding that vaccines protect you from disease, but also that they cause autism. One of those is bunk. Vaccines don't cause autism. But it could easily conflate the two. I actually haven't put that into the chatbot, but I'm curious now. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I it's 50-50, right? Right. You have to, as a user, be able to tell that what you, when what it spits out is not exactly correct. That's, honestly, okay, so this is one of the most fundamental issues um, uh, to continue the example, I can, I can say, um, so, you, oh, by the way, you, you were saying, um, ask something more, what's a question you might ask that you genuinely want to know? You're looking up, you're, you're going to be doing a show, uh, you know, another episode on what the if, and you're kind of researching a topic and trying to get up to speed. And let's say you go to use Bing chat to research that. What's a question you might Well, know? first of all, I wouldn't use Bing. Right. <laughs> I'd die before I use Bing. Um, honestly, I wouldn't. So here, here's part of an important thing, right? I'm talking in some respect as an expert. Yeah. This is not me trying to like really quickly brush up on something when I'm like in a conversation with a bunch of tech bros and trying to understand what they're saying. I'm I'm talking as a virologist from X, Y, or Z university. I have to make sure my shit is correct. So I kind of can't just Google like that. Because it's not going to link its sources, right? Like it. I so, so here, here's an, here. I'll give an example of what kind of thing could happen. Um, oh, here, here's a great example. Okay, here's a great example. Which um, uh, I want to give a shout out to um, fabulous YouTube uh, science and history and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Um, uh, Joe Scott. He's on YouTube. He's a huge channel called Answers with Joe. Wonderful guy. And I've gotten to know him a little bit over the past year or two. And um, uh, last night, uh, I was in a hangout with him. And uh, we were talking about AI and all this stuff. And so he, um, uh, this Bing chat we've been talking about is kind of using uh, a related software, which is also available. You can go try out. It's called ChatGPT. You probably heard the name. Anyway, same kind of thing. You go and you type questions, and the computer gives you an answer. Um, and, uh, which was kind of like, by the way, the dream of computers all the way back in the fifties, the idea that you could just mm -hmm. ask a computer something and it responds to you. So that, that's kind of fun idea of where we're at. So, um, he, uh, uh, 
heard about there's a, an imaginary city. There's some kind of crazy guy, you know, really you know eccentric guy who has a vision for a highly futuristic city he would love to build in the middle of Arizona, the, the most high-tech city ever built. It's, it's just an idea, you know, and he's like a visionary, a futurist or whatever. He has not built Stupidly it. planned in a place with very, very little water to yeah. support that yeah. gigantic yeah. city. With a lot of room, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. For, for your visions. But, um, and I think it's called Teledon. Anyway, um, Joe decided, you know, he thought, hey, for his YouTube show, he'd love to do a story about this Teledon. So, which is, doesn't exist, by the way. It's, it's you know, it's, a, it's plans. It's an imaginary thing. But uh, he goes to ChatGBT and he says, uh, um, he just types in, tell me about Teledon. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. He, he, here's, some, here's the kind of thing you can do. This is part of the level of this thing that is astounding that I have also been playing with because I also work in um, documentary, television, et cetera. And um, so Joe, Joe does, his shows are about 10 minutes long. Usually what he does is he, he spends a week, he and his writers spend a week writing like a news script or like a Discovery Channel type thing, a 10-minute Discovery Channel type thing, where he'll talk about a subject and then he'll show you pictures of the thing as he's talking. Um, anyway, he goes to ChatGPT and he just writes and he says, write me a 10-minute um, script about Teledon. Great. Instantly, and that's kind of the spooky thing about using these bots, because he knows it would take him a week, he and his staff of writers, two or three other writers, a week to really craft a nice, you know, well-researched and well-written 10-minute um, piece. Anyway, the, boom, instantly he gets a thing, and it looks beautiful. And he just, without reading it yet, he's just scanning through it, and he's like, this is insane. It's like in the format of a script. It has an introduction. It's uh, great. And he starts to read it, and he notices from the very first sentence, it says, Teledon is a gigantic, magnificent, futuristic city in the middle of the country. He goes, he's like, he's like, I don't know how many mistakes there are in there. <laughs> and it's only the first mm -hmm. sentence. And then it goes on and on and on to describe. And what it seemed to have done was it, it was as if it had written a press release for this city, which probably doesn't even exist. The computer got confused. Um, and in these, the database that these computers are using is essentially the entire internet. Not exactly, but it, you know, that, that's the thing, you know. You know that Google and Bing, in order to provide you search results, they literally scan the entire every single web page on the internet, and there's like 10 billion pages or something. Um, uh, you know, constantly every day, and um, in doing that, they can also just hey record all the words that are written on all those pages and learn some stuff. But the thing, the computer seemed to have, ChatGPT seemed to have missed the fact that this was. Not this was an unbuilt imaginary project, uh, and I'm sure too. Part of the reason why I missed it, right, is because if you have if if it's mostly pulling from sources from the guy who's planning it, right. he's probably not talking that much about the fact that it's not built yet. That's probably pretty implicit. Like one time, right. I'm planning right. this city. Right. Right. I'm planning this city doesn't say it's not built That's yet. Right. That's right. So if that's kind of not forefront or said enough, but the guy who's planning on building it is has all of this information about what it'll look like, what its features will be, yada yada yada. Yeah. It's not gonna miss. It's gonna miss the fact that it's it's not built yet. It's only gonna highlight the stuff that the author of that page is highlighting. Yeah. Um, I don't know personally. It's kind of I. I mean, you can probably tell from my tone in this. I'm not a big fan. Not to say that I I don't think it'll be useful eventually, but I'm currently seeing. People use it for frustrating things or over-rely on it or over-personify it. Um, and I think it's kind of the same risk that anything runs, anything new runs with over-interpretation. Right. It's kind of easy for us as people to personify and just to take something and completely run with it. Right. Um, but the biggest frustration I'm seeing is like, you know, I hang out, especially in the internet, in a lot of creative circles. I like art. I'm a writer myself. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things with some of these AI art generators is they're trained on copyrighted art and then they will spit back out art that looks, you know, pretty much like what was copyrighted and will even have a mangled watermark. Um, or one of the ones that I feel really bad about uh, too hey, is... Before you go further, just, just again, for those who have absolutely no idea what we're talking about, what, what are you talking about? Tell someone what you mean. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there are, as much as there's ones like ChatGPT that 
come back to you with words. There are other ones that generate art. I've also fooled around with them myself because I one time was like, let me, I think it was in the pandemic. I was like, let me just mess around with this. So what, like what, what, is, what do you type in, in the entry? Uh, I, I actually didn't type anything. So, um, there was, there's other ones. Oh Christ. I can't remember it. The name of it. Um, it is another AI art thing, but it's older. Uh Um, and you can, stable fusion, you can use it. I don't, I don't remember the name. I think it had art in the name somewhere, but you can essentially processionally generate things where you can say landscape or portrait, and then you could kind of give it like tickers of like fantasy, sci-fi, whatever. Uh And then you could amp certain things, Uh Uh um, or like through different sliders and it would start changing. Like, so for face, then it would give you, if you, if it's bat you five faces to start, right. five or six faces to start. By the way, let's just describe mm-hmm. that. That's an astounding thing. What we're talking about is, again, for those who just have absolutely no idea, you essentially, the computer said, what would you like? And there were some checkboxes, some options you could choose. And you said, give me uh, faces um, and give me you know, several faces. Yeah, like portraits, portraits. Like, like things that look like oil paintings. And they come back, and these aren't like crude drawings, or these aren't images taken from Google Images or anything like that. These are absolutely new, never seen before, beautiful um, images that look like they were painted by somebody. But I will say the the never seen before is kind of important in the uh, fact that kind of not exactly. So why? Yeah, because in their data sets. So for example, there's another one that auto that auto generates faces. And you're like, this is a person that doesn't exist. Right. But if you look actually at their training data set, there will be a photos of somebody sometimes who looks a lot like that one. Mm. Like you maybe just slightly changed the way their hair was up, but it's basically that exact, exact same person. Mm. So it's kind of one of these 50-50 things where like you just because it's able to do something slightly different doesn't mean it's not just presenting back a slightly warped slightly stylistically altered version of something that already exists. I, I will just update that a little bit. The one, one of the things that has changed, and this has been, again, if I understand it correctly, a surprise to the programmers, to the geniuses, to the Elon Musks even of the world, and to the... Well, Elon Musk is not a genius. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's, hey, believe me, I have, yeah, he's a controversial fellow. So, um, but, you know, anyway, the people that are doing the work, right, the people that are creating these uh, algorithms and writing the programs and then using them and seeing what, what, what happens as they continue to update their programs. Anyway, suddenly um, what they've been doing is increasing the size of the database that the computer is pulling from. So you were saying, yeah, okay, in this earlier version of this um, program that would... You- but MidJourney does it too. Like even more newer versions of this, but, even with expanded data sets, sometimes they still do make something that basically exists. However, right. expanding the data set does actually expand the variations that it can make on it. So Chet- If you have only three colors that you're painting with, getting a few more kind of helps you make a wider variation of color. Right, and I think as a scientist, you would, you would appreciate this, that what has happened is the size of the data sets has, in, is, is let, let's, not exactly this mathematically, but essentially the size of the data sets that they are feeding, they, they are allowing these algorithms to draw from, is increasing exponentially. And so for a long time, it was a little bit bigger, and then the next version came out, and there was a little bit bigger data set. It was 1,000 pictures, and now it's 10,000 pictures, and then it was 100,000 pictures. Suddenly, we are in, I believe, ChatGPT is pulling from a database of like 15 billion. I don't know. It's, it's, and, and we're getting into the trillions. So the size of the information that the computers have available is astounding. And this is why um, the results that are coming back are no longer they can feel repetitive sometimes but they but this the odds of you're actually finding a direct connection between a particular face in the database and what the computer actually drew is less because the computer is using instead of 10,000 faces to combine into one it's true Phil, there's literally software there's literally software that you can use to tell what the predominant thing the the AI was using. Right. It, it's not necessarily always an equal sum, you know, ten parts this, one percent this. Like, 
you can actually kind of go and figure out. I actually, I say this because so context, I'm in the discord for a literary magazine that has been currently overrun with AI submissions and it's people just trying to, Oh, we should talk they, about they that. think yeah. it's a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. And a lot of people have been talking about this because there's a lot of artists who are like cover artists for the magazine who have had their stuff become involved in generative art sets without their consent. And there is a, there's a, a program that essentially lets you, f an, an initiative to try to figure out what they're using because some of these newer AI art things, um, even though they're essentially better in the way that they're able to create more, right. can still sometimes be leaning heavily on specific pieces of art. And so there's ways to check, you know, is, you know, 60% of this art drawn from one artist? Um, and that is actually kind of a, a problem like just like just because it has more data doesn't mean it's necessarily right and of course using every no one knows better than the artists themselves right i can imagine being an artist and suddenly looking somebody posts something on twitter of like look at this ai image i made using midjourney and it's you know and then you're like wait a minute that feel that's that's like into my style and by the way you can you can further you know elicit this sort of potential copyright problem because you can ask, this is one of the astounding things, but you can say to the, you can type in, show me a picture of a UFO hovering over Manhattan. Okay. And then you get something, right? And it looks like it's a, it'll be a beautiful science fiction image. It'll feel totally like the cover of some science fiction book. But let's say it's not, doesn't look like some particular artist necessarily. You can then say, show it to me in the style of Chris Foss, you know, one of the great. Mm -hmm science fiction artists, and it will look <laughs> really like... Uncomfortably like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, it, it, I, I will say, I mean, for one, currently, I don't know how many people know this yet, because it just kind of came out that actually a U.S. copyright office denied copyright on, on AI-created art, which I think is fair, right? Mm. Because it's essentially you could get somebody copyright infringing on somebody's copyrighted AI art by putting in something similar into the generator. Um, and in both cases, it's the AI making the art. Um, but I think that there is a kind of a fine line to currently walk with exploring AI for art. Um, so again, there's another science fiction writer. It's, it's the same guy who wrote that article, but who was also um, a, a science fiction writer. And in the pandemic, he felt a lot of art block. He got into... Um, AI, you know, writing. And so he trained, he made a neural net and trained it only on his own writing. And he's like a multi, like award-winning author. And so he found it kind of spat back and nonsense, stuff, like, stuff that like, you know, didn't really work necessarily narratively, but he used it as an echo chamber with himself yes. to essentially eventually craft the narrative that was more, almost exclusively written by him, yeah. but was influenced by, hearing his own style parroted back at him, yeah. which I think is an interesting use of the art form. Yeah. Um, but right now, I think I alluded to it. Um, I subscribe to this magazine, Clark's World, um, and I had seen sort of come the start of the new year and the release of ChatGPT, um, the editor, Neil, um, talk about how he was getting a lot more AI submissions, which they don't really allow currently, in part because of this sort of question mark of copyright. Like, how do you publish something if you don't know if the author technically really will own the work right. according to the way that writing law, like we, we have all these laws for how it works. If you wrote it yourself as a human being, that's kind of a little bit reliable right now, considering that everything else is the wild west. Right. So if you run a magazine, you kind of want to still stick with it. So just to clarify, to clarify for the uninitiated, I can sit down at ChatGPT um, and just, write one sentence or whatever. I can just type in and say, you know, um, please write a... I can, I, can, I can just do this, actually. I can literally just say, please write a science fiction story. And boom, instantly, they're very short because the computer can only manage, you know, um, things of a few pages long. But whatever, I can say, write a science fiction story. And it writes a science fiction story. Now, that first thing, because I didn't give it any details, will be, like, really generic and bland. So I could say, yeah. write a science fiction story um, in the style of Philip K. Dick, let's say, one of the famous science fiction writers. Um, I can do something even, let's say I try to get a little bit more clever. I say, write a science fiction story in the style of Philip K. Dick mixed with um, 
um, Ursula K. Le Guin. Shakespeare. Oh, Shakespeare. You can say Shakespeare and give it a left turn and it'll do a pretty It's astounding. It will do it. Right. Okay. So let's say we spit that out and then I don't make any edits in it even. I copy the text and I go to Clark's world and I hit upload and I say, here's something I wrote. Is that, that's what's happening? And a lot of people are doing that. Yeah. Here's the problem. Yeah. Of course, a couple things. One, the stories tend to be incredibly bland. Yeah. <laughs> even if you get it to do something really more sophisticated, part of what makes fiction compelling is that it doesn't do what you expect. But because this is pulling from thousands and thousands of already written works, it is essentially, again, the sum average of most science fiction plots. So you end up with something that is pretty bland. It's exactly where you expect it to go, even though it kind of sounds like something that was written by a person. The the usual, the things that make human writing tend to stand out don't aren't there. It, it comes across. It tends to read very trite. Mm-hmm. Um, not to insult any high schoolers who might be listening, but in my experience, it kind of reads like a high schooler. I agree. Like a f- high school freshman's like fiction mm-hmm. assignment. Yeah. That even if you have a high school freshman who like was really into Shakespeare and is great at like impersonating Shakespeare, it's it's just kind of mid. Right. Also, but, just just to not insult computer programmers or fans of computing in general. Oh, the idea. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a huge. This is such a, a leap. leap forward that it can even. <laughs> the computer do that. can write at a high school level. Is like what? <laughs> Which is insane because normally what you get is and and I, and here I will admit to like. As much as I've been, you know, the Luddite naysayer about applications, yeah. it is cool seeing that it, it can even do this yeah. because it previous iterations of like chatbots were really limited in scope. Mm-hmm. Eventually they would reach questions they couldn't answer and they would just say, I'm sorry, please rephrase your question or something like that, or connecting you with a representative. Right. <laughs> um, and so the fact that, you know, it's able to generally make a cohes- a, a pretty coherent thing beginning, middle, end, even if it sounds trite, that's that's pretty impressive for, you know, the the software that they developed and trained. Um, but the problem is, is that um, because when all of this AI stuff started coming out, it was immediately grabbed as a get-rich-quick thing. So a bunch of websites started putting out like, oh, here are websites that will pay you to write. Huh. Um, you can just put it through AI and all of a sudden you've written a thing and the problem is like poor Neil, the editor in Clear's world, he got actually he was like fifty submissions in one day, and like halfway through February, he had like had to ban like five hundred accounts because they were just sending him spam AI stuff. Yeah. And you again, you can kind of tell still. So it's like this poor guy was wading through piles of slush to, and it wasn't going away. Um, is he? I, so, I imagine what he's doing is considering. Use you know I imagine you could use AI, of some sort of filtering app, to try to weed out that. Well, stuff. so one they're kind of error prone, and two usually what here's part of the insidious thing: the companies that are developing the AI detection ones are also developing the AI detection evasion software. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> the ones sides. that get detected are feeding into yeah. how they figure out how to give the AI more variable answers. Like one thing I've noticed with ChatGPT, when you tell it to write a story, it tends to use almost the exact same length every single paragraph. Yeah, that a human will vary paragraph structure and stuff like that, where the AI tends to write exactly the same number of sentences. But I will say, um, you you can being, change that parameter, just so you know. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, but if if you're just somebody who's cranking through a hundred in a day. Yeah, you notice it. not really, yeah, yeah, you notice it. Um, But also too, like, the one that always gets me is uh, just, you know, things that uh, the machine tends to do is like Bing's chatbot almost always ends aligned with an emoji, which I think is hysterical, especially if like somebody really pushes this thing until it breaks a little bit. (laughs) Then you've got it saying nonsense. And then there's like a little smiley face, ooh-woo, at the end. Um, And it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. I don't even know where I was going anymore with talking about the AI arts. Well, stuff, let's do this. Let's wrap up by saying, and then and then we'll <laughs> save some for our. Um, whether we're going to continue the discussion a little bit longer, I'm um, going to expand even further. We're going to go really far with it, uh, only for our Patreon listeners. So, if you want to get the extended discussion on this topic, um, if you want to hear some more stuff that might even help you fuel fuel your own passions, ideas, frustrations, or dreams, um, again, we'll be recording an extended. Uh, discussion uh, with Gabby and I on this topic um, 
only for Patreon listeners, uh, patreon.com slash what the if to find out more. But um, jump really, as we like to do at the end of our ifs, at the end of our thought experiments, I like to hit the gas pedal and jump into the future. Okay. What do you see? Um, let's, uh, let's take two, you know, a positive and a negative. In the a positive outcome, what do you think has happened to the world? Um, there may become some interfaces that are easier to use mm. um, just because it's kind of like AI-assisted. Um, maybe I'm, like I said, I'm taking a very, like, tempered scientist <laughs> yeah. okay. approach to yeah. where it's used. What, that, like, it's probably useful as a chat assistant on the internet or, you know, other, like, automated things. But um, suppose, suppose, for instance, they solve the accuracy issue, right? Suppose it becomes... And there's no reason why it shouldn't, right? Um, suppose, you know, um, that future versions are incredibly accurate, uh, at least as dependable as, you know, a really solid, um, um, well, let's say Scientific American or something, you know, uh, kind of like you can trust it. New York Times, if you feel, you know, some legitimate news source that you feel you can trust. It's like, you know, it's as solid as that. It's vetted, right? Um, had in that positive outcome, imagine that. Uh, what what do you think as a scientist? How do you let's let's suppose this? Here's the the most positive outcome is that you as a scientist actually feel totally comfortable using it. What does that look like? Mm, I mean, I guess one of the bigger one. Actually, you know what? Yeah, I can actually already tell you one. Uh -huh. um, protein folding. Uh -huh. um, that's a big one. That protein folding is hard to predict. And um, it, it's, it's DeepMind, it's Google's mm -hmm. um, AI. They, they trained it on protein folding to figure out the structures of protein. And it is ludicrously accurate. I actually do use it in the lab. Huh? Um, uh -huh. So it, it, it's like, you know, you have to, you have to I'm not going to use one that's pretending to be interpersonal and that's like maybe like a, a lab assistant or something like that. But I'm definitely going to use the one that tells me like a little bit about something that's, that's kind of helpful. Like... Um, like modeling. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the protein folding one is really nice um, because areas that are structured, it can predict very well. Yeah. So even if there's a protein that no human is independently verified, crystallized, what have you, the algorithm can do a pretty good job of telling you about how it would fold. And then everywhere that it says, oh, shape uncertain is likely an unstructured region, which is also good to know. Yeah. Uh, so it winds up being very convenient because uh, if for the most part, you can kind of do some prediction on protein folding and stuff like that based on the amino acid sequence, but there are some really complicated shapes and domains that have specific functions that you kind of can't predict otherwise. Right. And so the fact that it can sort of just assemble a nice 3D little structure um, and make those domains and show you what that would look like is helpful because then you can take the shape of it and compare it to the shape of other proteins to try to figure out you know, what it might be doing. Right. And that's something that you can't do without a structure. And so being able to get sort of a pilot structure to help you do stuff is, is very convenient. Yeah. yeah. So I can say that I'm not completely a Luddite. I have used some of this stuff before. Right. I'm just very specific about application well, so far. What I see I is what helps you trust it a little bit better. And I actually, I can relate to this. You're sort of saying, you know, on specialized tasks, you feel better because a lot of attention has been put in and whoever wrote this app and all the people who have been using it have been, you know, checking it and checking it and checking it. Um, other scientists verify the the validity and the safety of this app. Um, say that's a really good thing. So you know, I could combined with, yeah. I think for me, the things that make Chat GPT etc. evocative are its impersonation of human human interactions uh -huh. and things that currently only people can do, right. which are the things that I am a luddite enough to be like every science fiction dystopian story is like, what if we removed human interaction and it goes badly? So my brain is like, no, I don't want to get rid of that. Um, so I, I, I can, the one other thing I was thinking maybe that I could, would actually like an AI for is there's a lot of stupid stuff in grants that's not actually the proposal. Yeah. There's a lot of automated stuff that's like, it's just filling in letters of support. It, it's almost structural. It, it's like, you just sort of have to like, Right, and how much money this is going to need, stuff like that, where it's it's part of just this foundational backbone of a grant, 
but it's so tedious and so frustrating, but it doesn't actually require any thought as to the experiments you're going to run. That like actual part about like proposing your experiments is like three pages and the grant is like a hundred yeah. and a hundred of those pages are other assorted formatted nonsense. Yeah. If an AI could handle that, that'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, just give us, because we're running out of time, give us just wrapping up here, a tiny tease of what you imagine the negative outcome to be, and we'll save the rest for Patreon. Patreon listeners will get to hear the full, a uh, little bit more fleshing out of your negative dystopian version of uh, what has happened when the AI have worked their way into every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I mean, so maybe this is already me, like, you know, Gen Z, late-stage capitalism. <laughs> but I think that so much stuff on the internet is already being sanitized and commercialized. And if you remove any element of necessarily needing people or having a human interaction, human oversight, and it's just AI, I think that very much might not be a great thing. I mean, who knows? I'm just kind of imagining it as like, Facebook to the nth degree, a terrible echo chamber that, you know, if all of your articles are AI generated, all of your media is AI generated, your new music's AI generated, like... But also all of the comments you're posting on Facebook, your reaction to an AI written news article is written by is your AI. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's trained off of you yeah. or something like that. Like, it feels like a strange automation of participation. That there's no actual reason for you to get invested in anything. Right. It's just keeping up this facsimile, like, facsimile of something else, which actually I feel like there actually is a science fiction story about like robots made to do all of these things for people and then the people are gone, but the robots then still go about well, there's the, doing all of these things. The Ray Bradbury story of the house on, there will, on Mars. Yeah, there will come soft rains. I, I, yeah, that one is a good one. Yeah. yeah, the people are gone, but like the automated vacuum continues to run every day and the toaster That story pops is on. so sad. Yeah. It's like so quietly sad. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of like that. But and yet it is our li- it is. <laughs> It is the world we're currently living in with our automated Roombas and uh, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah, but the Roomba can't, like, I don't know, revolt and come from my ankles if, like, I I haven't been feeding it enough Cheetos or subscribe. Like, maybe, like, you know. Well, that is the dystopian future. That is the dystopian future. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, the dystopian future is that if you don't pay the subscription service to keep your Roomba from turning evil, yes. it does then yes. try to stab you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Fear the Roomba. That's always a good place to end. Um, I think that is a good place to yeah, yeah. Wrap, wrap up. <laughs> uh, I will not look at my Roomba the same way again. Um, uh, we will continue the discussion uh, in our in our Patreon uh bonus feature as i mentioned patreon.com slash what the if it's a membership program if you haven't heard about it i really encourage you to check it out first of all we're enormously immensely grateful to all of our patreon supporters for supporting the show and helping us keep it going and grow it and reach a wider audience and can continue to do sort of fun science education which i hope you feel we're doing um and uh in return for signing up and it's very inexpensive um really like starts at one dollar um, you, there are all kinds of rewards available depending on what level you sign up as, um, but you also get this bonus audio content, which is kind of fun. So uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, Gabby, real quick, any, anything you want to uh, plug coming up? Any AI written the stuff you're getting published? Absolutely not. All human. Um, only, only human stuff, yeah. yeah. Although, of course, you know, the human being has to have time to write that. And therefore, she has not written anything. New <laughs> yeah, <or in> that's <laughs> why you need AI. You're going to get sucked down the rabbit hole. <laughs> it does it in an instant, cool. in a nanosecond. Um, all right. So, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this program. Send us with your thoughts. This really this gets a lot of people thinking and gets a lot of passions going. So, I'd love to hear your points of view. And uh, if you've done anything cool with uh, some of the new AI stuff, send it in. Um, if you want to recommend any AI websites or articles about AI or anything like that, check it out. I highly recommend uh, just the article I mentioned at the beginning. It's by Kevin Roos, R-O-O-S-E, uh, in the New York Times, where he uh, had uh, what he called a very uh, spooky encounter with um, uh, Bing Chat. It's a, it is a fascinating article. It's not all dark either. There's some optimistic stuff in there. It's fascinating. Anyway, it's, it's great. Uh, thank you all for listening. 
Um, Gabby, let's close out with our, uh, our um, again, all human, fully human generated closing mm-hmm. ritual. And what is that? Yeah, as we are inundated with an internet and a reality that is entirely AI written, AI generated, completely human devoid, we cannot help but shout the name of the show together in unison. What the is? Hail the robots. Thank you for tuning in, robots, and you humans too. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.